Well, turn, your, turn in your Bibles to Romans 7. Uh, if you have one, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have one uh, that you can collect right out those doors uh, when you leave today. Uh, ten years ago, the world lost one of the most clever, complicated, uh, brilliant, and misunderstood communicators of grace to ever live. Uh, his name was Brennan Manning. If you ask uh, a Christian celebrity or a Christian artist, you know, who was most influential in their spiritual development, you might very well hear the name uh, Brendan Manning. Folks like U2, uh, Bono of U2, and uh, uh, Rich Mullins and others have said that uh, they were greatly influenced by Brendan Manning. One of the first home groups that I ever led, uh, we went through a book by Brendan Manning called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And the folks in the group were absolutely enthralled uh, by the book. In fact, one guy who was in his uh, mid-50s came to Saving Faith through that discussion as we talked about the gospel through that book. Uh, others le learned to understand grace in fresh new ways and were encouraged by the grace of God. And there were some, though, in the group who were really bothered by the book and especially uh, Brandon Manning's own life. He was a man who struggled uh, with sin his, own li his whole life, as, of course, uh, all of us do, but his sins were definitely more public than most of ours. His life was a series of incredible, uh, spectacular, and very public failures. Um, he was a he was an author. He was a one point a, a priest and then a traveling preacher. And he would speak, for example, to a thousand college students, and then immediately after that speaking engagement, he would go right to the nearest bar and he would get blackout drunk. He wrestled with alcoholism, uh, infidelity, a litany of other vices, but for reasons known only to the Lord, God used him in remarkable ways. In fact, one university chaplain at a, at a school that Manning spoke said there was no one that he ever brought to campus, ever, that spoke to the hearts of students the way Brennan Manning did. In his last book, Manning's last book, his memoir, he wrote, mine has been anything but a straight shot, more like a crooked path filled with thorns and crows and vodka, prone to wonder, you bet. I've amazed crowds one night and lied to friends the next. I've been John the Beloved, Peter the Coward, Thomas the Doubter, all before the waitress brought the check. I've shattered every one of the Ten Commandments six times Tuesday. And if you believe that last sentence was for dramatic effect, it wasn't. So by his own admission, Brendan Manning's life was a mess. He never tried to justify his sins. He was uh, a very repentant person, but he never could quite seem to get victory over some of those nagging and plaguing sins. But he did understand experientially what we talked about a couple of weeks ago from the book of Romans, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You might fall a thousand times, but there, there's grace for 1,001 1, forgivenesses, so to speak. Manning, again, was a man who just pleaded with God for forgiveness on a regular basis. As he was facing death at the age of 77, this was in 2013, he summarized his life this way. My life is a witness to vulgar grace, a grace that amazes as it offends. It's not cheap, it's free, and as such, it will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. So one of our commitments here at Capshaw is, is to expositional preaching. So we work through uh, books of the Bible section uh, by section. And we do that 
for a variety of reasons, but one reason is it allows the Holy Spirit to uh, sort of drive the agenda for the church and for, of course, our Sunday morning gatherings. It also helps us to keep the text in the context so we're not pulling things out of context and making the Bible say things that it was never, uh, never intended to say. And it also, though, it also forces us to deal with hard passages and it forces us to really deal with the tension that we see throughout the Bible. Well, that tension will be on full display this morning. Last week in the first half of Romans 7, I said that the life of the Christian is not a hopeless life. Um, we will see progress and growth over time, over years and over decades. And it's not, it's not the promise of imminent perfection that'll happen anytime soon or even in this life, but we will see progress. But then we hear stories like the one I just shared with Brendan Manning, and we read the last half of Romans 7 in which Paul chronicles his own struggles. He does the very things he doesn't want to do, evil things. And the very things he knows that he should be doing, he doesn't do. And we read that and we say, well, how does that work? How do we make sense of that? How do we attempt to resolve the tension. You know, we say and, and we believe that we can have progress by God's uh, spirit, and, and that's the right way to think and believe, but we don't see it in our lives, uh, at least in small uh, increments. We, we often struggle with the same sins, same temptations over and over and over. And then we read the passage again that we're in this morning. We, we say, well, if the apostle Paul couldn't uh, get it right. If he couldn't get it together, how in the world can I? So Romans chapter seven, and usually what I do is kind of break it up three or four verses at a time, but this, is, this argument really has to be read and, and heard at once. So let me read verses 13 through 25. Here reads the word of the Lord. Did that which is good then bring death to me? He's talking about the law here. By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate." Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do evil or do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now that's hard enough to read, let alone to make sense of, uh, but we're going to try to do it this morning. So Paul's made it clear throughout, really, chapters 5, 6, and 7, but 
uh, last week we saw this, the last couple of weeks, that the commands of God are not the problem. So the problem is not the law of God. Now remember, sometimes when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. Sometimes he extends uh, to include, really is meant to include all the commands of God. And then, and then there's also other meanings. We'll see one of those in just a moment. All the commands of God flow from his holy character and show us the way to glorify God and really how to live in a way that promotes human flourishing. Just because we react negatively to the law, that is to say, we bristle when we're told, do this and don't do that, it doesn't mean the law is to blame. We are to blame as the sin in us overflows out of our hearts and we do what we are forbidden from doing. In verse 9, the previous section, Paul says, I thought I was alive. He was doing great. At least that's what he thought. Honoring God with his life, living a life well-pleasing to God. But when he really understood what the law required of him, not just outward conformity to a set of rules, but perfect obedience from the heart, he realized that he was dead. He was condemned. He was under the holy judgment of God. That's what he's referring to in verse 13 when he says, sin was shown to be sin through the commandment and sin was revealed to be sin beyond measure. When my uh, son, my second born son, Luke was in junior high when he was 12, he was bigger than every kid in school. Um, and this wasn't that, he was always bigger than every kid since he was born. He was uh, 10 pounds, 14 ounces at birth. Um, as all the ladies grown, and, uh, and he was 23 inches, and so, you know, I just, even in the nursery, when he stretched out, he just dwarfed every other kid in there, and he, he just continued to be bigger than all the other kids. Well, uh, no, of course, you know, things would level out, but not only was he, in, at 12 years old, bigger than all the other kids, he was more athletic than all the other kids, so he just dominated every sport he played, and it wasn't because we went to a little rural school in the country, we went to, he was part of a school uh, in Southern California. It was a huge school, you know, and with lots of kids. I remember the first year he played baseball, we were, the coach had all the kids line up at home plate. And they said, and he said, okay, I want you to sprint to the center field fence and return back. And so he said, ready, go. And all the kids took off. And in, in my Luke, he just, he got home. He could have sat down, you know, cross-legged and waited for everybody to get there. He just beat everybody. One of the other parents standing next, next to me said, that's just not fair. That's not fair that it should be like that. Uh, he was the best kid at basketball. He was the fastest kid at track. Until one, one year, the, his junior high went to regionals, which was all the, the, the schools in this region of Southern California. And he ran the 400, as I recall, and he was ready, prepared, had beaten everybody in his school handily. And he lines up, kids, kids from all over, and the gun goes off, and this kid just absolutely destroyed Luke. I mean, he, he was so fast, uh, he would end up in high school, placing in state in you know, this big uh, region. But he just absolutely, just ne nearly lapped him. Well, you don't really lap in the 400, but he was that much far ahead of Luke. And when Luke finally crossed the finish line, uh, he literally just collapsed in, in embarrassment. He started sobbing. I went up to him. I hugged him. I squeezed him. I said, it's okay. Don't worry about it. He wouldn't talk for hours. He was just crushed. See, the problem was Luke had been compared to, was comparing himself to all the kids in his school. But when he was compared to those kids in his region, a very different standard 
uh, he failed uh, terribly in terms of his ability to win. Now, for many of us, we don't really see ourselves as self-exalting, self-centered, greedy, sinful people because we compare ourselves to the people around us, more specifically the people who, uh, that we think are worse than we are. But the law of God offers a different standard, the standard of perfection in thought, in word, in motive, in action. The law of God, which you've heard me say a hundred times, is good, but it also exposes us. It shows all the ways that we have failed to meet God's standard for us, which is the standard of perfection. The commandments of God reveal sin for what it is, verse 13, sinful beyond measure. And because they demand perfect and perpetual obedience, they expose us as far worse than we ever imagined we were. This is where Paul finds himself in Romans 7. The law has exposed him. The law has revealed just how sinful. He thought he was doing great. He thought he was fully alive, pleasing to God, and he's exposed by the law. In fact, he realizes he keeps failing to the same temptations over and over. Now, I should point out that there's this huge debate, and it's been going on for centuries, as to whether Paul in Romans 7, whether he's referring to himself before he was a Christian, sort of his pre-Christian state, or as a Christian in his, uh, the state of grace. There are some who argue that Paul has to be talking about himself before conversion because he would never say the things that he says if he was talking about himself as a Christian, like, I'm sold under sin, verse 14, or I know nothing good dwells in me, verse 18. Some say that as a Christian, Paul would never act so impulsively and keep doing the same things over and over that he hates to do. But I'm persuaded, and, and many others uh, with me over the years, in fact, really all the Reformed confessions, that Paul's talking about himself as a Christian. As a Christian. This is a struggle Paul is having as a Christian. And I say that for several reasons, and there, there are a number of reasons to make that claim, but partly because from verse 14 on, there is a change in tense. So Paul goes from writing in the past tense to verse 14 in the present tense, and because Paul says in verse 22 that he delights in the law of God in his inner being. So at the very core of who he is, he delights in the law of God, which is actually impossible for a non-Christian to do. Someone who has a heart that's unregenerate, that's not been made spiritually alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, can never delight in the law of God, nor can they ever seek to glorify God as their ultimate end. The hearts and minds and wills of non-Christians are hostile to God's authority. They don't delight in his law. So it's clear to me that this is Paul after his conversion. Again, as it has been for many other th uh, theologians throughout history, John Calvin wrote, Paul is depicting in his own person the character and extent of the weakness of believers, Christians. A couple hundred years later, John Murray wrote, the main question in the interpretation of verses 14 through 25, the passage I just read, is one on which there has been deep-seated difference of judgment in the history of interpretation. Does Paul delineate for us his pre-regenerate experience or his present experience in the state of grace? Now, Murray would go on to conclude, the tension which appears in 714 through 25 between that which Paul delights in, loves, approves, and wills, and that which he is and does in contravention is inevitable in the regenerate man. 
as long as sin remains in him. So these struggles are the struggles of the Christian. This is a description of the normal Christian life. Paul's doing us a huge favor here. He's resetting our expectations, both in ourselves and and the people around us. He's saying we ought not to be surprised when other people sin. We ought not to be surprised when other people sin against us. I remember when I I did a pastoral internship in the summer of 2000, and the pastor, the senior pastor, was super gracious and allowed me in everything he did. Sermon prep, counseling, uh, planning, administration, leadership, whatever. And I remember sitting with him in the first counseling session, um, and this guy, it would be clear, just lying to, I mean, I was sitting off to the side, just lying and lying and lying. And the senior pastor said, look, don't be surprised when people lie to you. Don't be surprised when people betray you. Don't be surprised when people sin against you. So Paul's, he's setting our expectation, but not just with others, also with ourselves. We ought not to think so highly of ourselves, in, place such confidence in our own abilities, our own goodness, or even our own motives, or even our success against sin. When we have such a high view of ourselves, we will only be let down and shocked at our own failures. So what's he getting at? Here's our first point. The only hope we have for ourselves is to abandon all hope in ourselves. Not only are we by our own ability unable to save ourselves, we can't save ourselves, we can't become reconciled to God, but in our own strength, in, our own, in ourselves, we are unable to keep the law and we're unable to refrain from sinning. You know, it's, it's funny how God and his good providence works. I'm, I was in the middle of sermon prep and this was on Friday and I'm just, I'm wrestling with all this. I do what I don't do and I don't do what I do, do all this stuff and I'm just saying, all right, I need a mental break here. So I, I got on Facebook for just a couple minutes and I don't get on every day, but sometimes I get on and, and I jumped on for a few minutes. Well, when I logged on to Facebook, the very first thing that popped on my feed, right in the center of my Facebook feed was an ad for Tony Robbins' new global motivational tour entitled, Unleash the Power Within, Breaking the Barriers of Your Unlimited Potential. Now, I I don't know why I did this. It was dumb, but I started scrolling through some of the comments. There were like 23,000 comments. I didn't get through all 23,000. I did return to my studies. Uh, But I'm looking through those, and there are people there who are, they're putting everything, they have all their hope in this. Finally, they will be rescued finally delivered from these negative habits and negative thoughts. And I didn't reply, I didn't respond to any of them, of course. I don't know any of those people. But if I would have, I would have said something like, I hate to break it to you, but there is no power within you to unleash. There's nothing there that's gonna help you in the long run. If you're apart from Christ, you have no hope of being reconciled to God, apart from Christ, no hope of lasting change. Even for those of us who are in Christ, who have Jesus, there's no power in our own strength or in our own personal resolve. Now, this is not about being resigned. This is a reality check, right? Paul's not calling us to be okay with sinning, to be resigned to it, to celebrate failure, or to give up hope altogether. He's telling us something about who we really are as sin-cursed, unglorified people, and he's pointing us to the only one who can actually really deliver us. 
We saw that in verse 23 and 24. This hopelessness in ourselves is meant to drive us to desperate prayer, to an absolute dependence upon God and his grace, to a pattern of humble confession with, each, with other people, and meant to compel us to avail ourselves of the means of grace. But what does it mean in verse 14 when he says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of, of the flesh, and in particular, sold under sin doesn't seem to be something that a Christian would say. In fact, it seems to go against what Paul has already said and what we know is Romans chapter six. The apostle Paul uses the adjective spiritual 24 times in his letters and every time except one, it's a reference to something being God-given, a gift from God. So what he says, that's how he uses it here. He's saying, we know that the law is actually a gift from God. It's a gift from God because it exposes our own sinfulness reveals the character of God, shows us the best way to live, and so on. He goes on to say that he is of the flesh. Now, we said a few weeks ago that the Christian is given a new nature. We don't have dueling natures within us. We don't have the old nature and the new nature, and this was a a, a common way of speaking, especially in fundamentalism. Uh, We have one new nature, and because of that, we're able to see the law as something as spiritual, i.e. God-given, verse 16, to see the law as good and Because we've been given a new nature, we desire to keep the law. We're still accused by the law. still shows us where we fail, but we can actually delight in the law as we recognize that it is God's gift to us, again, to show us the way of human flourishing, to show us how to please the one who's redeemed us. However, we are of the flesh. We are still sin-cursed creatures, and even though we've been given a new nature, the residue of sin still remains in us, and it always will until we receive our glorified bodies. Paul calls it the flesh, which is not simply a reference to our physical bodies, but the corruption that remains in us as unglorified people. So when we are saved by faith in Jesus, we are completely cleansed of our sin record, so God no longer will ever hold our sins against us, but we're not completely cleansed of the corruption of our hearts. We're not enslaved to sin. As Craig, one of our elders, explained that so well. It's not our master, but sin still remains in us and will until our dying day. This is why, like Paul, we do the things we don't want to do. This is why we don't do the very things we know we should do. We know what to do. The question is not knowing. The question is doing. And that's because... Verse 17, the sin that dwells within us. But if that's true, how could Paul say in verse 14 that he's sold under sin? Didn't Paul tell us in chapter 6 that we're not slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ, slaves to righteousness? This is really uh, hard, and it's really hotly debated. And this is verse, by the way, is why many conclude that Paul's not talking about himself as a Christian here. And I just read and read endlessly on this one particular verse. Um, because it does matter. I mean, as Christians, are we under slavery to sin or not? And the answer is, we're not slaves to sin, but we are still completely powerless to keep the law and resist temptation in our own strength. So it feels like we're under slavery. What Paul's doing here is he's, he's looking at his own personal struggle from a certain perspective, and as he does, what he does, he's crying out, he's saying, I can't win! I just cannot win. This battle is endless and exhausting. Kim Riddlebarger is a pastor 
Southern California. Kim's actually a guy. And um, he grew up in more of a sort of a fundamentalist tradition. He grew up in churches and they had altar calls that would go on and on and on. And he said he always, he, he tried so hard not to sin, but he kept sinning. And so he'd go forward every week and rededicate his life every week. And it wasn't until he really understood Romans 7 that that changed. He, here's how he explains what Paul's saying. Paul is aware of his freedom from sin's enslavement. And yet because of indwelling sin, st- uh, still feels as though sin has a death grip on him. In other words, the final outcome of the war is a foregone conclusion. Christ wins, and so will those in union with him. But there are a number of battles within dwelling sin still to be fought. And this is what Paul is describing, the struggle, not the final outcome. When we sin, we are secure in Jesus. You put your faith in Christ. He will not abandon you. He will not desert you. He will not turn away from you. He will not condemn you. But the fact that we are secure in Christ positionally doesn't mean that the fight is over. To the contrary, to be in Christ means to struggle. To be in Christ means to struggle. The fact that we struggle is an indication that we have the spirit of Christ in us. Here's our second point. It's very practical. Your intense struggle with sin, certainly mine too, is not evidence that you're not a Christian but proof that sanctification is actually taking place. Don't despise the struggle. Don't read into your battle with sin that you don't belong to Jesus. To struggle is a good thing. If there was no struggle, there's no relationship with God. If you're not aware of your own sinfulness, if you're not broken over your own failures, if you don't wrestle in your hearts to please God, the Spirit must not be indwelling you. I was talking to, with a young couple years ago. Uh, In high school, they started dating, and within the first six months of their relationship, they had sex. And they came to me, and they were both crying, they were both broken, And the young lady in particular was absolutely devastated. She felt worthless, like she had no longer any value. She had been exposed to the purity culture and she was told that if you surrender yourself in that way to a man, you have nothing left to offer anyone. No one will want you, she was told. And again, she was ashamed, she was repentant. She shared with me how much she loved Jesus. She'd come to faith in Christ as a little girl and believed it was a genuine conversion. She wanted to please God her whole life. She asked me if she was really a Christian or if she had fooled herself into believing that she was when in fact she wasn't. I assured her that she had much to offer someone and that God loved her deeply and saw her as beautiful and perfect, a treasured daughter. She said, but how can I know if I'm a Christian when I failed this way? I didn't want to do this, but I gave in. I said, you're a Christian because God made you one. God brought you to saving faith in Christ, made you his own child. He will not let you go. Your salvation is anchored in Jesus, not your supposed purity. She said, but I feel like I just struggle to obey God and it breaks my heart. I said, the fact that you're struggling is a good thing. If you didn't have the spirit of God, you wouldn't have that kind of struggle. 
The fact that you long to please God is a good thing. That's evidence, at least in part, that you belong to him. Yeah, you've sinned against God, but remember, Jesus died for sinners. Here, Paul is deeply struggling with sin, completely frustrated by his own failures. It feels like he can't do anything right. The evil that he doesn't want to do, he keeps doing. But he knows that he belongs to the Lord. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, he says in verse 22. Then look at verse 23 again. He says, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So remember, when Paul talks about the law, again, sometimes he's, let's go back to the Mosaic law. Sometimes it's a, more of a catch-all phrase refer, referring to all the commands of God. But sometimes, as in verse 23, he's actually talking about not those other things, but what we might call an operating principle he uses the word in the sense of an operating principle. I have, we might paraphrase, I have this operating principle at work in me. What's the operating principle? It is the presence and power of indwelling sin. Doesn't mean that Paul is, is able to blame his sin on some foreign object living inside of him. Paul's just admitting the ongoing struggle which plays out in Paul doing the things he doesn't want to do and not doing the things he wants to do, which leads him to say in verse 24, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, there's some who say, see, right there, see? Paul would not talk about himself in that way if he were talking about himself as a Christian. And to that I say, really? I mean, this is the same guy who, after he planted churches all around the Macedonian world, referred himself as the worst of all sinners, the chief of sinners. Actually, it is because of his spiritual maturity that Paul is able to recognize how far he has fallen from God's standard and therefore how wretched he truly is. New Testament scholar Charles Cranfield writes, the farther men advance in the Christian life and the more mature their discipleship, the clearer becomes their perspective of the heights to which God calls them and the more painfully sharp their consciousness of the distance between what they ought and want to be and what they are said way more simply, this pastor down, this Cajun pastor down in Louisiana, Jean Leroux writes, if the biggest sinner you know isn't you, you don't know yourself very well. You say, but how can that be the case? I mean, how can, if we really believe that, how can we have any joy? How do we live without guilt? How do we live without shame? How do we know that God will ever receive us? Verse 25 Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul will go on to explain what God does through Jesus in chapter eight, uh, what I and many others would say is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And we're gonna get to that next week. And it's so rich and it's so encouraging. Um, but Paul does say right here why he's praising God. Why such gratitude after he shared with us with great pain and transparency all the ways he's struggling? Here's why. It's our final point. In the gospel of grace, there is hope for the broken and sinful. The promise of God's steadfast love, total forgiveness, and never departing presence. Paul does not, he doesn't try to cover things up. He doesn't sugarcoat things. No, 
I'm doing all these things I don't want to do. I am sinning in all these ways. Uh, He's painfully aware of his sins and shortcomings, but he's resting in the same gospel that he's been proclaiming this whole letter, starting in chapter 1. And despite his constant failures, he can celebrate, he can worship, he can live with joy, he can live with freedom, because Paul knows that his acceptance before God is not rooted in his performance, up and down though it may be, but in Christ's performance for him. Paul knows that despite all the ways that he has failed to keep God's commands, Jesus was perfectly obedient in Paul's place. And because Paul has trusted in Jesus, let's remember this miraculous, incredible transformation on the road to Damascus. Because he's trusted in Jesus, God sees Paul as perfect. All those sins he's committed, every time he does something he does want to do, every time he doesn't do what he knows he should do, those are sins and shortcomings that Jesus died for. And the, and the shame that Paul feels for not doing what he knows he ought to do, Jesus took that shame on himself on the cross. So Paul doesn't need to be ashamed. He doesn't need to live with a constant fear of God's approval. He doesn't need to worry about God's love or acceptance of him. Paul has a savior in Jesus who promises to never leave him nor forsake him. Paul has a savior in Christ who has fulfilled all of God's requirements and has actually given to Paul, Christ has given to Paul, imputed to Paul his own righteousness. And of course, this is the same for you and me. If you are in Christ, yes, you will struggle. And maybe this morning was an epic struggle for you. Just getting here, you will struggle. But you have a Savior who has died for your sins, a Savior who promises never to leave you or forsake you, who paid the penalty for your sins on the cross, who was raised from the dead to free you from sin's condemnation and make you new. And knowing that, Resting in that reality, trusting in that truth that we have a Savior who has accomplished our salvation for us and guarantee the completion of our salvation will set you free with this, to live with the same sort of gratitude and hope and worship and joy that Paul had. It won't set you free from the struggle of sin. That's going to be part of the normal Christian life. It won't guarantee you success in all your ventures. All right, that's the prosperity gospel. That's false. But it will give you peace with God. And it will give you a joy that other people can't make sense of. And it will give you the freedom to live without shame or fear. See, the ultimate issue, what's more important than anything else, including our own obedience or lack thereof, is the steadfast love of God demonstrated to us in Christ. So just in 60 seconds, let's try to reconcile last week's, the last part of, the first part of chapter seven and the last part. So if you're a Christian, you're gonna sin. You will sin. Uh, And you're gonna sin in ways that you deny or maybe you're not even aware of that particular sin tendency. There is hope for you in Christ. There's hope God will grow you. He is sanctifying you. He will make you more like his son. And at any given moment when you're faced with temptation, you can be victorious over that temptation through the power of Christ who resides in you. But when you do sin, when I do sin, which we will, 
We have an advocate before the Father, the one who died for us, the one who lived for us, and the one who is right now interceding for us, saying to the Father every time we sin, that one belongs to me. That's the sin I died for, and it will be never held against us again. Let's pray.